Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS Shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com's new rate advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with our promo code POD, P-O-D, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in POD. That's Stamps.com, promo code P-O-D. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. The Oracle Network. Welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Good morning. How are you? I'm sleepy. Me too. It's a sleepy day. It's a sleepy, slightly snowy day. Yeah, it's what we would call here in Minnesota a dusting. It's very light. Willie was super excited about it. He was like, oh my god, snow! It's like very light, dry snow. It's not gonna stick around. It's like Hollywood snow. Yeah. It's just a bunch of, like, soap flakes. Oh my gosh, and (laughs) Willie's just eating them up. Mmm, soap! Where are the squirrels? Just starts burping bubbles. He would, too. All right. So, I unintentionally kind of made November, like, a bummer. (laughs) Oh no! What <laughs> like the episode? No, is this? It can't be worse than last week's. Stop! Stop! You hesitated. No. Oh, uh, what? I don't know. I meant. To, I don't know. I didn't mean to have such like horrible content like one week after another. Oh no! I feel like this is like. I had a name for it, and I think I have it at the end of the episode. I wrote it down, like a special name for this 
horrible November of sad content. But today we are going to be discussing the great dying of 1616 to 1619. That sounds fun and totally not horrible. The great dying. So Mm -hmm. people were just dying. Yep. For three years. Mm -hmm. You know, this sounds a little familiar, but won't get into it. All right. (laughs) So information was pulled from the following sources. A 2020 The Conversation article by Matthew Patrick Rowley. A 2014 Cult Nation article by Mark Lasky. 2012 Slate article by Madeline Johnson, 2010 Emerging Infectious Diseases article by John S. Marr and John T. Cafe, Historic Ipswich on the Massachusetts North Shore article, New England Historical Society website, PBS Learning Media resource from The Pilgrims, American Experience, and Wikipedia. Okay, this is starting to make sense. Yep. This is like, hey, let's go to another country where I'm sure there will be no consequences of our actions at all. Can totally be on a different land. Yep. Different climate. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. You ready? I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, I want, I want wig snatching. 2021, January 2021 needs to be like... 2022. Oh, no. I don't want to go back in time. I don't want to go back in time either. Okay, 2022, only lighthearted stories for January. I promise January will be joyful, and I will just have funny stories in January to reward you for making it through. (laughs) Oh, no. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, the pilgrims. It's like, oh, yeah, the pilgrims. <laughs> yep. Right, row. So for those of our listeners who don't live in America, tomorrow will be our nation's Thanksgiving celebration. And as we were taught in school, Thanksgiving was a time when the pilgrims, who left England to start a new life in the Americas, shared a meal with the indigenous Wampanoag peoples in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And it was all nice, and they had cornucopias of, of fresh fruits and vegetables, and they gathered, and they were just so happy, and then they murdered lots of turkeys, and they were still happy. Mm-hmm. That's what we were taught. Yep. As children. Yes. What gets glossed over in the history books is the fact that the pilgrims who arrived via the Mayflower weren't stumbling upon a land of divine providence, as they believed when they landed at Plymouth Rock. Nope. The land that, quote, God had prepared for them, end quote, was actually the remnants of Wampanoag villages that had been decimated by plague. Yeah, I didn't re- I didn't get that that part nope. in school. Didn't hear about that part. Nope. So pass the sweet potatoes and tuck in your napkin, because we're going to talk about how the Europeans brought forth a plague that would wipe out almost all of the indigenous peoples of the New England territories. It's what we consider modern-day terrorism today. No longer a whoopsie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the first Europeans who visited the areas between Maine and Massachusetts included the English, Dutch, and Portuguese fishermen, French fur traders, and Basque whalers. You know, it makes sense that the Portuguese people were there, but I don't hear a lot about Portuguese. I hear Dutch and French and English. Yeah, I didn't think about the Portuguese either. But that makes sense, you know, like they're all pretty close together in the islands and if they would get word about fur, 
go find mm-hmm. it. Not to mention, but we yeah. probably had a very abundant fishing areas, apparently. Yeah. Did not think about the Portuguese. Mm-mm. What a surprise. <laughs> Kill surprise. Some of the earliest documented explorers include a French vessel that fished in the Grand Banks off Newfoundland as early as 1504. That doesn't count because that's Canada. Doesn't okay. Count. Okay. All right. But it is in the, <laughs> the North America. It's f- reaching. Literally. Well, so high up. <laughs> it's, it's close to Maine. It's close to Maine. It is. It is. So within 15 years, 100 European ships had come to Grand Banks and brought with them diseases such as smallpox, measles, tuberculosis, cholera, and the bubonic plague. Oh, just those, huh? Yep. Little you know, trading card illnesses. Yep. It's like the Pokemon of plagues. Honestly, because a lot of them came from rats. So yep. literally. Exactly. Instead of catching them all, they released them all. Yep. Radis, radis, I don't choose you, which oh, is the, no. the Latin name for the black rat. The rat's so nice, they named it twice. In 1586, Maine's Passamaquoddy population, which was amongst the first of the tribes to make contact with the Europeans, were nearly mm-hmm. wiped out by a typhus epidemic, and other diseases took their numbers down from 20,000 to 4,000. Wow. That is alarming. Mm-hmm. The French made several excursions to the New World, with Samuel de Champlain leading a mapping expedition in the Plymouth Harbor area in 1605 in what is modern-day Port St. Louis, or St. Louis, I don't know, on the East Coast. At the time that Champlain encountered the Wampanoag in their native settlement of Patuxet, they had been living in the area for almost 10,000 years, and their population numbered around 12,000. It's a good number. Pretty good number. 10,000 years. Yeah, so they've been there for a long time. Really long time. Linda Coombs, a Wampanoag historian, noted that there were around 69 villages in the area. And this is all along the the coast from like Maine all the way down to Massachusetts. That makes sense. Of which there could be from 100 to 2,000 people at each village. So at that point in time, there could have been close to... 70,000 Algonquin at the beginning of the 17th century. Wow. Okay. In 1606, another expedition took place with the intention of scouting out areas for a French settlement, and they regularly visited the area. Many scholars believe it is these explorers that introduced the pestilence that would later decimate many of the native peoples. That kind of checks out. France was really gross, unintentionally, overpopulation. Yeah. There was a legend passed around the English settlers that later arrived in the area that a ship full of Frenchmen crashed near Cape Cod, and the crew was captured by the Nauset of the area, who executed the bulk of them. Yeah, okay. This brutal execution brought forth a, quote, divine curse, end quote, against the Nauset, and this belief was shared by Thomas Morton, who stated, quote, in a short time after, the hand of God fell heavily upon the Nauset with such a mortal stroke that they died on heaps as they lay in their houses, end quote. Wow. That is like the worst. That's, oh gosh. That, no. What? What? That just really makes me upset. Well, you know, God was all about plagues back in the Old Testament. That was his jam. 
Yeah, and he was like, "These guys don't know about the Old Testament, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give him a quick, you know, history lesson, quick review before we go into the new one where I'm nice again." Yep, this is the Cliff Notes version. Right. Cotton Mather embellished this tale, stating that one oh, of the no. French, I know, not Cotton not Mather, Cotton Mather, <laughs> who, for those of you that are familiar with the name, but not necessarily why. He was one of the people during the Salem Witch Trials. He's trash. Literal human trash. Yeah, he is a garbage person. He's a black rat. Exactly. He is a ratus ratus. So Cotton Mather embellished this tale, stating that one of the French sailors had supposedly, quote, warned those tawny pagans that God being angry with them for their wickedness would not only destroy them all, but also people the place with another nation, end quote. Gross. Yep. This religious bullshit aside, there is a record in 1614 of a French craft crashing and some of the men were taken captive by the Nazis and enslaved. Two of the men were ransomed in 1615 to Thomas Dermer, who was an English captain. When questioned, neither of the survivors mentioned any of their former shipmates passing from disease. So as far as they know, like none of them had been sick on their voyage and after they had arrived in the New World. Okay. That doesn't mean anything, but... No. Along the main coast, where the French and Abenaki frequently traded with one another, an outbreak was reported in 1616 by Father Pierre Baird. This French Jesuit missionary wrote, quote, The Abenaki are astonished and often complain that since the French mingle and carry on trade with them, they are dying fast and the population is thinning out, end quote. Oh. That had to be so scary. Yeah. Captain Richard Vines, an explorer from England who spent the winter of 1616 in Maine, also noted that the locals, quote, were sore afflicted with the plague, for that the country was in a manner left void of inhabitants, end quote. That's awful. In New Hampshire, along the Merrimack River, the 1616 plague killed three out of every Penacooks. And in Massachusetts, it almost obliterated the Agoam and Nomkieg tribes. So almost just completely wiped them out. Yeah. It almost like made them extinct, basically. I was just going to say, there's really no other way of saying that. Mm-hmm. It didn't take long for this unknown epidemic to spread along a 15-mile-wide path from Maine along the trade routes frequented by the Abenaki as they traveled south to barter for corn and other such provisions with their Algonquin neighbors. Soon, the villages along this route became virtually deserted as they were blighted by the disease. In the words of Thomas Morton, who was one of the first colonists from the Mayflower, quote, For in a place where many inhabited, there hath been but one left alive to tell what became of the rest, the living being, as it seems, not able to bury the dead. They were left for the crows, kites, and vermin to prey upon, and the bones and skulls upon the several places of their habitations made such a spectacle after my coming into those parts, it seemed to me a newfound Golgotha, end quote. That's horrifying. Mm-hmm. And those those animals feasting on them would have just spread it more. Mm-hmm. Awful. Can you imagine? Like, that's literally something out of, like, a horror film. It's like something out of the apocalypse. I can't imagine that. Like... I know that there were certain parts of the world that had really horrific 
COVID numbers, but we Mm -hmm. never, like, I didn't see dead bodies in the street (laughs) Mm -hmm. being picked at by animals. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Where would you like to go back in history? Um, never nowhere. Thanks. Yep, exactly. I'm good. <laughs> Can I have a bubble? Yeah. Sixteen eighteen seemed to be the height of the epidemic, and it also happened to be the year that a strange comet flew over New England. The medicine men of the Penacook and Wampanoag tribes viewed this cosmic event as an extremely ill omen, a confirmation okay. that the disease responsible for wiping out their people was soon going to spread. Unfortunately for them, this omen would prove to be correct. Oh, just yeah. a bunch of pretty space dust that scared them. Mm-hmm. The plague tore through the Massachusetts Bay, taking out the indigenous populations by the thousands. Jeez. It's reported that the plague went from the Kennebec and Penobscot rivers of southern Maine as far south as Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. The highest concentrated areas of devastation was Boston Harbor and Plymouth Bay, both of which were frequented by Europeans. Damn Europeans. So, I mean, it made sense that those two areas, which were highly concentrated, would spread the disease. Mm -hmm. And also, no matter what you do, ships carry critters. Yep. It's still happening to this day, you know, with like certain bugs and spiders and stuff. So... Sorry about it. In 1619, Captain Thomas Dermer wrote that, quote, ancient plantations, not long since populous, now lay utterly void. In other places, a remnant remains, but not free of sickness, end quote. Depending on what village you visited, the plague claimed 75 to 90 percent of the indigenous population, not to mention there were several settlements where the entire village had been wiped out. This is crazy, especially Mm -hmm. since, you know, I was taught much later that we were giving smallpox to them when we were super established. Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, when you think about it as a rational human being, it makes sense that this happened. Mm -hmm. But to not be told about it at all in school is kind of messed up. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they teach it. Do you think they teach it in New England? I don't know. Because they were so close to it. I don't know. Somebody email us and tell us if you learned about this. If you're from like Maine or Boston or, you know, I'd be curious to see if they, if they do teach something like this in school, like Mm -hmm. elementary, middle or high school. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, those that survived this epidemic suffered severe psychological trauma. Mm Mm-hmm. Historian Jill Lepore wrote, quote, a whole village might have two survivors, and those two survivors were not just like any two people. They were two people who had seen everyone they know die miserable, wretched, painful, excruciatingly painful deaths, end quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be really awful. And power, like you'd feel powerless because mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do to fix it. Mm-hmm. Unlike in Europe, where populations decimated by plague were able to bounce back and rebuild not only their towns, but their numbers, the native peoples didn't and couldn't do the same. The economic structure that had once been in place was now virtually non-existent, not to mention trade, politics, and even military powers changed constantly based on the strengths of the tribes that remained. Yeah. 
There was also a huge drop in fertility rates amongst the survivors of the blight, making it impossible for the native population to get anywhere near what it once was. Oh, that's so sad. So what caused this plague, and what illness was it? The Wampanoags referred to it as the Great Dying, while the English often referred to it by many charming names, such as a prodigious pestilence and a sweeping mortality. Gotta make it fancy, you know? Yep. Medical historian Timothy Bratton believes it was a, quote, disease that originated in Europe and represented a classic virgin soil encounter between Amerindians and alien contagion, end quote. So kind of like, you know, you're introducing something foreign into a place where they have zero resistance to it because they've never encountered right. it before. It's like those frogs in Hawaii that have no predators. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is awesome! Only instead yep. of... Frogs, it's viral infections. Mm-hmm. But the illness responsible for this blight still remains a mystery. I bet it was a bunch. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was a bunch of different strains of stuff. I bet it was influenza, and it was smallpox, and it was typhoid, and it was, you know. Well, we'll kind of go into like what the symptoms and stuff were. So from what we're able to determine, based off the information that was collected from people alive during this time, the disease had an extremely high mortality rate, and the symptoms included severe headache, nose bleeding, muscle pains and cramping, yellowing of the skin, lung Ooh. congestion, hemorrhaging, and lingering pockmarks. Okay. Based on this, some of the symptoms are consistent with the Black Death that spread throughout Europe, and several peoples noted that the homes of the indigenous people were overrun by fleas, which we now know were the real carriers of the disease. Yeah. There is also just as much debate against it being any number of the plagues, whether bubonic, pneumonic, or septicemic, since the telltale symptoms of the plague, such as the swollen lymph nodes or the bubos, mm -hmm. they weren't present. Mm. Additionally, the way the Algonquin community was structured, with settlements spread out instead of in a concentrated area like a European city, it didn't present the population density that would typically cause an epidemic such as this to spread as rapidly as it did. Yeah, that's fair. Not only that, but the type of flea that carried the bacteria needed to cause the plague, it wasn't native. And in some of these areas, it necessarily wasn't very close to the bays where all the Europeans were coming through. That doesn't mean it couldn't have been spread by people who were going through and doing trade with other tribes, but yeah, it would have been, been harder. Some historians think smallpox is also a contender. When you hear of pock marks, pox tends to come to mind right away as an obvious choice. But there are some holes in this theory, which include the fact that adult Europeans, who had by this time in history become more resistant to the disease, were unlikely to have contracted it and been able to keep it incubated enough over the six-week voyage to be able to pass it along to the natives. Okay. And children... Do they have children? Well, children who were the most affected by the disease wouldn't be arriving in the New World in any sort of mass until over a decade after the plague ravaged the area. Okay. Interesting. Daniel Gukin, who was one of the earliest colonists in the Massachusetts area, took an interest in learning more about the disease and its effects. 
he noted, quote, discourse with some old Indians who were in their youth at the time of the epidemic, who say that the bodies all over were exceedingly yellow and described it by a yellow garment that they showed me both before they died and afterwards, end quote. So they were jaundiced. Yeah, they were very jaundiced. As a result of this discovery, theories came out that perhaps it was a bout of yellow fever. But since the plague was able to last throughout the winter, this theory was also quickly discounted because yellow fever is yeah. is spread typically by like mosquitoes. And yeah. obviously those wouldn't be able to survive in the winter. No. Other proposed diseases that could be the potential cause for this pandemic included typhus, chickenpox, trichinosis, influenza, cholera, diphtheria, malaria, measles, typhoid, scarlet fever, tuberculosis, hepatitis, meningitis, and a new theory, leptospirosis. It sounds cute, but you know it's not. Yeah. So in regards to leptospirosis, it's been proposed that this illness, which is carried in black rats, which were not native to North America, is the real culprit. And I'm not saying this is the answer, like like we've discovered it, but it's a very compelling argument. The disease spread through urine, which would contaminate the water, mud, and soil when these black rats are peeing everywhere. Leptospirosis is a zoonotic disease, which means it's a bacteria that lives in animal hosts. The main host for this fun little bacteria is the black rat, as I mentioned, because they are the only animal whose kidneys can hold up against multiple infections of this bacterium. Gross. Fun fact, the kidney of the black rat is so bad at doing its job that each time the rat pees, a single drop of its urine would contain hundreds of thousands of this bacteria. Gross. Another fun fact just 10 of these spirochets, spirochets, is that how you say it? Spirochets? Maybe, I don't know. I would assume so. Would kill a hamster via violent hemorrhaging in just 10 days. Wow. So just 10 of these, and they're peeing hundreds of thousands with just a single drop of urine. Man, okay. The leptospira are single-celled bacteria that metabolize iron to survive and secrete an enzyme that basically bursts open red blood cells like a piñata at a kid's party. So that they can get them. Yep. And due to their corkscrew shape, they're able to tunnel their way into organs and cell membranes to avoid the body's natural immune system. Horrifying. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, if you have a great immune system and the white blood cells attack this thing, surely you could beat it fairly quickly. Actually, that is the worst possible thing your body could do. By essentially turning the bacteria into shrapnel, it overloads the immune system, turning this bacterial infection into a fatality amongst normally healthy men. So it actually did better with healthier people. Exactly. So how did this infect the Algonquins? Contact with Leptospira bacteria could happen during any number of activities, but it has to enter the body. This would likely happen via the eyes, nose, or through scrapes on the skin. Mm -hmm. Once it enters the body, it heads for the kidneys. But unlike black rats, the human kidney doesn't provide the ideal host. That doesn't mean it wasn't fatal. And here's why. Unlike Europeans, the Wampanoag interacted differently with nature, spending lots of time in the water, fishing, and gutting slain animals, 
not to mention skinning pelts and picking cranberries from bogs on Cape Cod. Even though cranberries can be a great antimicrobial, it's entirely possible that they weren't able to kill off this bacteria. The Algonquins would use cranberries in their seasonal feasts of Thanksgiving, and also in medicines, particularly poultices, where they would be ground up and applied to open wounds. Okay. And as we know, the more of these bacteria that you can get into your bloodstream, the more likely it'll kill you. Mm -hmm. And chances are this is a local remedy that they may have been using as soon as people got sick, and they in fact made it worse. I'm not saying that's true. It's just a theory. It's a possibility. Yeah. A strong possibility. Yeah. The surviving Algonquins viewed the epidemic as the spirits working against them, that they had angered the god Hobamak, who is a deity of death and disease. They feared that their brethren, who had died and were unable to have proper burials, had cursed the land, and that the plague had come from the English, who they believed could summon it again at will, since they seemed immune to it themselves. They thought the English had polluted their storehouses with this illness and could use this weapon against them at any moment. Yeah, I could see that. They don't know who they are. They don't know how powerful they are. Yeah. When the pilgrims arrived in the area that would become the Plymouth Colony, they discovered a veritable ghost town of abandoned villages and abundant crops, not to mention tools and supplies. Amongst the buildings were the skeletal remains of the villagers who once inhabited the land, which included Wampanoag, Massachusetts, Penacook, Nauset, Pemaquid, and Abenaki peoples. So it could have been any number of those tribes. Yeah. To the pilgrims, this pestilence that had wiped out much of the native populations was all part of God's plan. Oh, of course it was. Morton stated the plague left the land, quote, much the more fit for the English nation to inhabit in and erect in its temples of the glory of God, end quote. Gross. I hate it. In the book Wonder Working Providence, it's noted, quote, Christ, whose great and glorious works the earth throughout are altogether for the benefit of his churches and chosen, not only made room for his people to plant, but also tamed the hard and cruel hearts of these barbarous Indians, insomuch that half a handful of his people, landing not long after in Plymouth Plantation, found little resistance, end quote. I hate all of that so much. The pilgrims quickly took advantage of the land that had been abandoned. The English had been trying for years to settle the area with little success, since the indigenous peoples didn't take too kindly to being pushed out, and I wonder why. Yeah, especially after 10,000 years. Exactly. Like, no, that's definitely my land. (laughs) Yeah. The 1620 Charter of New England, provided by King James I, noted, quote, Within these late years, there hath, by God's visitation, reigned a wonderful plague, the utter destruction, devastation, and depopulation of that whole territory, so as there is not left any that do claim or challenge any kind of interest therein. We, in our judgment, are persuaded and satisfied that the appointed time is come in which Almighty God, in his great goodness and bounty towards us and our people, hath thought fit and determined that those large and goodly territories, deserted as it were by their natural inhabitants, should be possessed and enjoyed by such of our subjects. End quote. I hate it. I hate it so much. Ugh. The famous 1620 Mayflower voyage had been a rough two months with many arriving at Cape Cod that winter sick and starving. 
the pilgrims ransacked the abandoned Nazet villages' food stores in search of anything edible that could sustain them during the coming winter before moving on to what they would later name New Plymouth. Mm-hmm. They endured weather unlike anything they'd experienced in the past, with around half of their numbers passing from tuberculosis and pneumonia. As winter gave way to spring, they quickly discovered that the surrounding areas were essentially a mass graveyard of the bones of thousands of indigenous peoples who had passed with no one to offer them proper burial. Mm-hmm. It's estimated that as many as nine out of every ten natives on the coast of New England were taken by the plague between 1616 and 1619. Wow. One out of, yeah, nine out of ten. Wow. Oh my God. Like, that's insane. Mm -hmm. William Bradford, who was the colonial governor of Plymouth, had this to say after his initial walk about the neighboring areas, quote, the good soil and the people not many, being dead and abundantly wasted in the late great mortality which fell in all these parts about three years before the coming of the English, wherein thousands of them died, their skulls and bones were found in many places lying still above the ground, where their houses and dwellings had been, a very sad spectacle to behold, end quote. Well, at least he cared enough to say that it was sad and it wasn't God celebrating them. Dying. Right. In the spring of 1621, the pilgrims were visited by Tisquantum, a Patuxet who had been abducted from his home in 1614 by an Englishman named Thomas Hunt. Tisquantum, who is often referred to as Squanto in history books, missed the epidemic that decimated his home during his years in captivity, during which he learned English. Tisquantum had returned to his village in 1619 to find that his entire tribe had been wiped out, at which time he went to live with the Wampanoags. When the English arrived in Plymouth, he helped bridge the language barrier between the local Poconoket and the Pilgrims in March of 1621. He lived with the pilgrims for 20 months, essentially teaching them all they would need to know to survive, like the fur trade and how to grow native crops, since all the ones they had brought over from England had failed. Unfortunately for Tisquantum, just like those before him, he too later contracted and passed from the Indian fever during an expedition to Cape Cod in November of 1622. The Wampanoag people had almost been wiped out but their numbers were still much larger than the numbers of pilgrims who had arrived at Plymouth. They could have easily attacked the pilgrims and taken back their villages, but they never did. Part of this was due to the fact that they were worried that the hostile Narragansetts to the south were going to overpower them. Hmm. As a result, Massasoit, who was the leader of the Wampanoag Confederacy, made a point of establishing peaceful relations with the English settlers. As more and more English settlers continued to travel across the sea to settle in the colony of Plymouth, more and more epidemics would sweep through the already decimated Native communities. This included the Great Smallpox Epidemic of 1633, the Universal Sickness of 1645, the Plague and Pox of 1650-1651, and the Bloody Flux of 1652. During these times of continued plague, Wars would break out between the Algonquin regions, such as the Pequot War of 1636-1638. This conflict was between the Mohegans and the Pequot. The Mohegans, who were allied with the English, were able to come out victorious, and the Pequot that weren't slaughtered were enslaved. Awesome. 
The Algonquin people had no beliefs in the end times, and those who had survived the great dying and all of the subsequent epidemics started to look towards the pilgrims and their Christian god for answers, which of course became exploited by people like John Eliot. What? No. Not them. John was a pastor of the First Church of Roxbury, and he translated their Christian texts into the Massachusetts language, and also put up praying towns for missionary purposes. Mm, Interesting. Praying towns. And of course, traditional prayer and powwows were, quote, a worshiping of the devil and not of God, end quote, which is why the misguided natives had been punished. Ah, that's why. Since their numbers had dwindled to almost nothing, of course they would accept these teachings as truth. Yeah, sure. Following the Pequot War, the colonists' attitudes towards the Algonquin began to shift, and eventually it boiled over into King Philip's War in 1675 to 1678, a conflict that involved almost the entirety of the New England Algonquin population against the English colonists. The war was disastrous for both sides of the conflict, but especially for the Algonquins, who found themselves Mm -hmm. the losers. After this, the English began to believe more than ever that both parties could no longer coexist. And so the shift began where the natives were pushed off their lands because it was God's will. Of course it was. The expulsion of the indigenous peoples became a widely accepted practice in the mid-1670s and continued throughout the expansion westward as the New England colonies continued to grow. And we all know how that played out. Super well. So with that, may your turkey be moist, your potatoes mashed, and keep an eye on those cranberries. Happy Thanksgiving. Gross. Thanks for nothing, Lindsay. Wow. (laughs) 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 I hated all of that. (laughs) Sorry about it. You can still come over for Thanksgiving, though. Okay, that's good. I really love green bean casserole. It's really good. It's a casserole, not a hot dish. All the cranberry growers out there are going to start, like, sending us hate mail. Right. At least we'll get mail. <laughs> exactly. It's a theory. I am not saying that the cranberries were what passed the plague on. It's just I'm sharing a theory. Yep. We still, to this day, do not know what caused the plague. I cannot emphasize that enough. Welcome to an undisclosed location. We are Murder Incorporated. Give me one good reason why people should listen to our podcast, buddy. Because you're getting true crime from a nerd and a murderer's son all wrapped into one. Yes, my father is a murderer, and you are indeed a nerd, buddy. What else sets us apart, Harley? I truly believe our empathy for the victims and their families shines through every episode. Also, 100% of all our listeners have not been murdered. We are Murder Incorporated. Anyway, this week's podcast plug is Murder Incorporated, one of the newest additions to the Oracle Network. Hey, welcome. Welcome, friends. Harvey and Buddy are two friends that share stories of well-known and not-as-well-known killers. I really enjoyed their multiple-episode coverage of the case of the Amish serial killer. Nice. That sounds very intriguing. It is super effed up. I bet. So be sure to give that one a listen. And by that one, I mean I think it was like five episodes. So it was a very comprehensive deep dive. Mm -hmm. But it it was a fascinating listen. Worth it. Worth it. And we'll include a link to their show in the show notes. And this week's listener question comes from our friend Tom. Hey, Tom. And he says, you want to get completely away from people. Understandable. 
Okay. Rainforest, polar ice caps, desert, under the ocean, or crazy deep underground bunker, or space station. Which do you choose? What were the options after desert? Under the ocean, crazy deep underground bunker, or a space station. Well, I hate to break it to you, but I'd probably die in every scenario because it's diabetes. (laughs) 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 Can't last super long. Last like maybe 30 days. It'd be the shortest vacation ever. (laughs) Depending on refrigeration in these areas. I'd like to say I'd I'd like to go underwater, but it's also very terrifying because there are so many creatures we just like don't know about. The ocean terrifies me. The ocean is horrifying. Like space could be cool, but it's also like, I feel like space is lonely. I don't do well in hot, damp places. So like the rainforest. I also don't like giant bugs. (laughs) This is fair. You know, there are so many giant bugs in the rainforest. Desert, it would be hot, but I'd be like, oh my god, armadillos, hi. Um, <laughs> but like, aside from that, yeah. And like the bunker, no. I, I think underwater. I think I'd face my fear for 30 days, go underwater, and then die. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what about you? Um, I think I would either do the desert, just because I'm picturing traveling by camel, and that sounds really fun. Nice. Or the bunker, just because I feel like it'd be easier for you to stockpile supplies so Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have to worry about finding food and water and you'd already be in a shelter. Shelter, yeah. So I might do the underground bunker and then just come out with a full-on crazy man beard after 30 days. There you go. Be all wild-eyed and feral. Well, you don't have to. You're not confined to 30 days. (laughs) No, I know, but I'm just... Yeah. That might be a good time frame to just be away from people for a while. And then you come out Robin Williams style from Jumanji and you're like, what year is it? Right. My arm hair is thick and luxurious. (laughs) I started braiding it. (laughs) You have to to be shaved more than once a day filming Peter Pan. (laughs) Wax me. All right. So what's something good you'd like to share? Oh man. To palate cleanse yeah. this episode. One thing I would love to share is so I was gone last week. Thank you all for not caring. Just kidding. You probably it was fine. <laughs> um <laughs> I I went to my first work trip and I met some of my coworkers for the first time in person. And it was just really lovely to see them and meet them. And Willie did really well flying and we had a good time and we have a chance at doing that again in January. And I'm trying to decide whether or not it's worth the long trip for Willie since he is going to be a seven-year-old boy in January. But yeah, it was, it was just a, it was a very stressful like work environment, you know, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it was a lot easier meeting these people who have been my friends since, you know, the last week in July. So it's just really lovely. I really enjoyed it. But I also think Willie and I are cursed. The past three flights we've taken together, we are always sat next to an elderly woman <laughs> who spills cold coffee on Willie. Oh, God. Like the past three times in a row, like different elderly women have spilled cold coffee on his tail and sometimes his leg. <laughs> so... 
You need to start um, traveling with like a towel and like just preemptively cover his back. I guess something like or just or like if they get the coffee. I'll be like, I'm just I'm sorry. Can you please choose a different form of caffeine? Yeah, <laughs> please. Can you have like a soda or something. Yeah, yeah. It happened the third time in a row. Ask the flight attendants for like a blanket or something. Can I cover him up because something. I know something's going to happen and this is preemptive on my part. Yeah. And, and how can you say no to that face? I know. He's so sweet. What about you? What's something good? Uh, I wanted to share a pet update because good things have been happening with all four of them. So oh. Kona, my dog. I'm going to have to like say what each animal is because we have so many pets. <laughs> Kona got groomed yesterday. So for her, that's basically just like a bath and getting her nails done because she's a short hair dog. Mm-hmm. And now she is so smooth, and she doesn't smell stinky anymore. That's wonderful. Quill, our bearded dragon, who had been brewmating for a long time, he woke up yesterday. Brewmating is kind of like hibernating. Okay. So he kind of goes and he like hides in this little like cave thing, and he just kind of sleeps for a while. Okay. And he does it like every winter. Just kind of does it for a week or so. I think he did it for a month this time. Mm-hmm. And Thomas was really worried about him. And then yesterday he woke up and he was like walking around a lot and kind of running around his enclosure. So that was very exciting. Feels good. Pascal, who is our spotted salamander. He was just really cute. He's my little Muppet baby. So that's really the only update I have for him is he's just really (laughs) cute. And Charlie, my ball python, he had a a shed (laughs) yesterday and the biggest poop I have ever seen from a reptile. It was disgusting. Anyway, he's back to being his beautiful yellow and brown self again. And he's been very active. I loved when I was over at your house and he kept trying to climb and he would fall. Yeah. So he'd like get to the top of the enclosure and you just hear like a doo. Yeah. Because <laughs> his body, he's just like, I'm done. Doo. He'll like stretch himself out like along the glass, but then he gets to a point where he can't support it anymore and he just falls backwards. And falls into like the little like coconut shred that is the bedding Mm -hmm. in his enclosure. And it's so funny. And then he'll just kind of like slither away like no one saw that. Like he gets all embarrassed. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) So that's my something good. All of our pets are doing well in some form or another. That's awesome. Shall we? We shall. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod. And on Instagram at Yield Crime Podcasts. We are on YouTube if you'd like to subscribe and click the bell for notifications. That's what it is, apparently. Oh, clicking. You click it or you can slap People it, click I suppose. Things. You can slap it, but if, if you have a computer monitor, be careful. We have a P.O. Box, so you can write to us at Yield Crime Podcast, P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota 55092. You can email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, story ideas, whatever you'd like to email us. A mm-hmm. uh, great way to support the show would be to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Good Pods. This week's review comes from Podchaser, mm-hmm. and it's from the Watch If You Dare podcast. Nice. And they say, Yield Crime excels by the energy and rapport of, their, of its hosts. They're funny and engaging. What also helps is the variety of cases that are dated and lesser known. As such, the subject matter is often very interesting. Give them a listen and subscribe now. 
Oh, thanks, guys. Thank you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee with a one-time donation. You can also join our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month. As we mentioned in the past, there is a sale every single week in November at our Tea Public shop. And this mm-hmm. week, it is November 23rd through the 30th, where you can get 35% off everything in the store. Nice. And to close out, a heads up, we will be taking the month of December off for mental health reasons. General regeneration. Yeah. Taking a break. Yeah. I've just been kind of stressed. I've had a lot of stuff going on. I'm getting a little burnt out and I kind of wanted to take a month off to recharge. But that doesn't mean we're not going to be publishing content. So we will be publishing guest content from the Riddle Me That podcast, The Jury Room, Pineapple Pizza, Reddit on Wiki, and Victimology. We'll be including a disclaimer at the start of every episode to kind of give you a heads up on what you'll be listening to. Mm-hmm. And we look forward to seeing you again in January with lots of fresh content. We're going to be having a Can You Crack the Cramp Word bracket, our first bracket. Oh, man. We're going to vote down and have two podcasts go head to head with new words to see if either of them comes out victorious. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> luck, everyone else. Yeah. And we'll come back with more full-length guest episodes, which I'm excited about. There's one that's kind of in the works right now. It may be in January, but it could possibly also be in February. We'll see. Mm -hmm. And a lot more. So from us, happy holidays. Yeah. Don't get sick. Get lots of sleep. Eat snacks and be merry. Don't feel bad for eating all the things because that's kind of what this season's all about, is eating all the things. Season's about comfort. And if you take comfort in that little slice of cake... You do you, baby. Mm -hmm. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime.